As many of you are aware, today is Pentecost Sunday, and Pentecost was the, the great harvest feast for, for the Jewish people. It's when they had the wheat harvest. And every time they celebrated Pentecost, they, they sang and spoke of the day of the great harvest of all the nations. And on Pentecost, after the Lord Jesus ascended, that harvest began. And so He gave His Spirit with special gifts of power. And so this afternoon, we will be reflecting on the role of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life. And for that purpose, then, we'll, we'll read from Romans 8, which describes some of that work in detail. So our reading is Romans 8, the entire chapter. Beginning then in verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit Who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. 
Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is, not, hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our, weakness, in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So far from the Word of God. Every week in this church, we also turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith to reflect on these basic truths of the faith. And since we are dealing with the Holy Spirit, let's also open the Heidelberg Catechism and read what the Catechism says concerning the Holy Spirit. That's in Lord's Day 20 on page 534. It's only a short Lord's Day and It asks the question, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, He is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, He is also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all His benefits, to comfort me and to remain with me forever. So far from the Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, is this a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit? Is that how you would describe this church here in Owen Sound? 
It's often been said that Reformed churches are are very strong in, in doctrine and in knowledge, but lacking in the Holy Spirit. Is there truth to that accusation? It's actually a very serious accusation if you think about it. Paul says in in the text we read, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. It's what the Lord Jesus Himself said. If one is not born of water and the Spirit, he cannot inherit or cannot enter the kingdom of God. Is this a church then that is filled with the Holy Spirit? One way we're not going to answer that question is by assuming what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then applying that assumption to ourselves or to others within the church. And it's a very easy thing to do to look over at this church over there and say without ever seriously examining Scripture that, oh, that's not a church that's filled with with the Holy Spirit. Or even to look across the aisle at a certain brother or sister and to say, he or she is definitely not filled with the Holy Spirit because they lack certain things that I assume must be there if the Spirit is there. That's one way we're not going to answer this question. Instead, this afternoon, let's take an honest look at what Scripture says concerning the work of the Holy Spirit, what He does, and then on that basis, we'll be able to look at some genuine signs that do indicate whether a person or a church is indeed filled with the Holy Spirit. I chose to focus on Romans 8 for this topic because Romans 8 gives this amazing series of descriptions of what it means to live life in and with the Holy Spirit. But actually, before we get to Romans 8, let's look at where Paul begins this argument Because he doesn't just randomly start talking about the Holy Spirit. And for that, let me just give a very brief overview here of Romans. We we know the book of Romans very well. Chapters 1 through 4 explain what it means to be justified by faith. Paul shows how the whole world is under God's judgment, both Jews and Gentiles. That our status of righteous before God is a gift. It's not something earned. And that's something that is basic for most of us here in a Reformed church, and thank God for that. That should be basic for us. Of course, we never, need, we, we never stop needing to be reminded of that, but, but that's, that's stuff that we know. That's the basics of the Christian faith. Then in chapter 5, Paul takes a, a different turn in the book of Romans. He starts talking about what it means now to live as someone who's justified by faith. What life is like for people who have been reconciled to God. And in the first verses of chapter 5, the first five verses, Paul summarizes the whole of of Christian life. And then all the rest of of Romans up till chapter 11, or up till chapter 8, excuse me, um, so chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 are all about what it means to live life as someone who's now at peace with God. And so let's just read the first five verses of, of Romans 5. You turn, with there, turn there with me if you would. You can think of Romans 5, 1 through 5 as sort of a, a summary of Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. And then he, he just spends the rest of those chapters elaborating on what he's introduced in these, in these verses. So Romans 5 verse 1, he says, 
Therefore, after all that doctrine from 1 through 4, which we know very well, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the summary of the Christian life. This is what life is like for you now. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So, so he gives a heads up. The Christian life involves hope. It's an essential dimension of being a Christian. Your life is one that's based on hope. Continuing in verse 3, And not only that, but we also glory in our tribulations. Another heads up. that Christian life is not easy. It's still full of tribulations. And he's going to talk more about that in a moment. Not only this, we also glory in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And then he says, here's the key verse for us to think about tonight. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts, into our hearts, by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And I think that last statement is a good summary of what you find in chapter 8. Our hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So that's where Paul is going in all of chapters 5 through 8. And and that last verse then is, is key for what we're thinking about this afternoon. That's the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. The reason you know that your hope does not disappoint you, because your Christian life is all about hope, the reason you know that that hope is not just a sham, it's not going to leave you disappointed, is because, Paul says, the love of God has been poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit. In other words, we, we don't just hope that God is going to still love us and accept us when we die or when He comes again. We know that God is going to love us and He already does love us because that love, Paul says, is poured into our hearts and the agent by which that happens is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit puts God's love in your heart and that is proof for you as a Christian that your hope is not going to disappoint you. You can see that this is where Paul is going if you look at how he finishes Romans 8. He dwells on the work of the Holy Spirit, but he finishes on that note of hope. Because of what the Spirit does, this is my hope. You see that in verses 38 through 39 of of, of now jumping into Romans 8. Uh, Verse 38, he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate me from, notice he says, the love of God. And why? Because that's what's been poured into his heart, which he says is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what's the Holy Spirit's primary work in your life As a Christian, it's to give the assurance and the knowledge of God's love. And there's this this phrase, the love of God, is a beautiful phrase because it's reciprocal. So the Spirit pours God's love into your heart and puts in your heart 
a reciprocal love back for God. In such a way then that we know God's love, we experience God's love, and we have no doubt about God's love so that we can finish our lives as Christians with the same hope that Paul finishes Romans chapter 8. We know our hope is not going to disappoint us. So that's Paul's introduction in chapter 5 verse 5. We know that that's where he's going to go. Fast forward then to to Romans 8. What is it that the Holy Spirit does to give us that kind of confidence? Well, I I spotted at least five things in, in Romans 8. And let's see if you can find these as well. First, the Spirit mediates Christ to us. I know that's a theological way of speaking, but but work with me. The Spirit mediates Christ to us. You can see that already in verse 2. Verse 1 says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then verse 2 elaborates on that saying, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So the Spirit, he calls the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You see how the Spirit is tied to Christ. That's why the Spirit is often called the shy member of the Trinity. Because he always points away from himself to Christ. That's the Spirit's role. He points us to Christ. Uh, And that's Paul's point here. He says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's through the Spirit that you are in Christ Jesus. Let me show it in another place in our text. Jump with me to verse 9. Where Paul says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone, he says, does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his, verse 10, and if Christ is not in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. What I want you to notice in in those verses is how many different names the Holy Spirit gets. Just in those two verses. Notice that he's first called the Spirit of God. Well, first he's called the Spirit in the beginning of verse 9. Then he says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then in the second part of verse 9, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And then in 10, verse 10, he just says, and if Christ is not in you. So he calls the Spirit himself Christ. And that's how intimately the Holy Spirit is tied to to Jesus Christ himself, that you can even just call him Christ. He proceeds from Christ, and he carries Christ with him. That's why in another text, Paul even says, now now the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord Christ is the Spirit. That's how intimately these two persons of the Trinity are, are tied together. So wherever the Spirit is, there Christ also is. It's true he's a distinct person of the Trinity, but he's never separated from Christ. Wherever he is, 
there Christ also is. So here's the point then. Christ accomplished everything that we need for our salvation. You know this very well. His perfect sacrifice, His righteousness in your place. And what the Spirit does is the Spirit gives that to us who believe. We don't just believe then that Christ died on the cross for the sins of the human race. We know personally confidently that Christ did so for us. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the heart of a Christian. And I can't make that happen as a preacher, nor can the elders during their home visits. No special formula can make that happen for you. Only the Spirit can take, your, take that faith from a knowledge that to a knowledge that Christ did this for me and He is mine. And the point, I don't see that so that we, we become sort of introspective, worried people wondering whether we ourselves have that confidence for ourselves, or, or trying to figure out if we have experienced the Holy Spirit in some, some special way. No, we have God's promises and we know God means His promises. This isn't meant to be complicated. When someone turns from sin, turns to Christ, he will be saved. The, the, the promise of the gospel is that simple. There's nothing complicated about that. But the reality is, many people still don't come, even though the gospel call is that simple. They hear the gospel preached, and it just doesn't interest them. It means nothing to them. They know what Christ has done, and it just doesn't mean anything to them. They don't love Him. They don't have any desire to follow him. Well, the difference between a believing Christian and such a person, the difference is the Holy Spirit. Only he can take us from knowing about Christ and what he has done to receiving Christ personally and everything that he has to offer. And that, that Paul says, is the reason we know that our hope is not going to disappoint us. If we have the Holy Spirit, then what Christ did on the cross matters to us. What, what Christ did is our treasure because of the Holy Spirit. The, the, as Paul says again, the, the love of God which we have in Christ fills our hearts. And if that's true, if the love of God dwells in your heart, if you experience and know the love of God, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. No one says Christ is Lord, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, except by the Spirit. And of course he means no one says Christ is Lord and, and means it from the bottom of his heart, except by the Spirit. And, and that should be, Paul writes that as a comfort to us. It should be comforting to us to know that. The Spirit mediates Christ to us, And if we see that happening, even at a small scale, we, we believe the gospel, we, we recognize that it's for us, even if we experience that on a small scale, in weakness, that is a sure sign that we belong to Christ. That's how we know our hope is not going to disappoint us. So that's the first thing the Spirit does. He mediates Christ to us. Second, the Spirit puts to death the deeds of the body. You can see that in, in verse 13. He says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
Now the deeds of the body, uh, they refer to the old nature, the people that we once used to be without Christ. It's not that there's anything wrong with the body itself. That's not the point. And the point that he's making is this. Because we receive Christ by the Spirit, that same Spirit makes us abhor and detest the things for which Christ had to die. Those two things go, go hand in hand. It's impossible to, to love Christ on the one hand without at the same time detesting the sin for which Christ went to the cross. And of course it's true, nobody detests that sin perfectly, but there's still a, a world of difference between between someone who despises Christ and someone who loves Him in weakness. Just as there's a world of difference between, uh, between cherishing sin on the one hand or fighting against it in, in weakness. And that's what the life of a Christian is. Loving Christ in weakness. Detesting sin, but in weakness. And, and Paul mentions this as a reason for assurance. You have to understand, that's why Paul gives these, these truths to us, in order to assure us. He says, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, then, as it were, rest assured, you will live. Which is, of course, a good reason to engage in that battle all the more fervently. If we're fighting against sin only half-heartedly, only barely, then we're robbing ourselves of that comfort that Paul wants to give us. If you're putting to death the deeds of the Spirit, you will live. And so put to death, or I'm sorry, the deeds of the flesh, then, then therefore go and put to death those deeds of the flesh for the sake of your own confidence and assurance. And so notice then also how Paul phrases it. If by the Spirit he says, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. Now so you see there's a cooperation happening there. That fight begins with the Spirit. It's empowered by the Spirit. But the Bible never talks about us like we're just you know, robots of the Spirit, mindlessly doing whatever the Spirit causes us to do. He says, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. So there's a responsibility there as Christians. And when we, when we get to see that battle happening within us, we get to see that as a reason for assurance. If the Spirit is at war within you, that is reason to know that you belong to the Spirit. So that's the second thing the Spirit does. He puts to death the deeds of the body. Third, the Holy Spirit assures us that we are God's children such that we cry out to Him. You can see I'm getting that from verses 15 and, and 16. He says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the third thing the Holy Spirit does. He assures us that we are God's children such that we cry out to our Father. Now let me say first what that spirit of adoption does not look like. It is not contented with itself. It does not see itself as having made it to the status of sonship of God. It is not self-absorbed. 
It is not self-confident. In fact, it's the very opposite of self-confidence. Notice what Paul says the spirit of adoption does. It doesn't just, it doesn't just say, Abba, Father, like some self-contented Christian might say, Ah, Father. No, what does the Spirit do? It cries out, Abba, Father. It's a very strong Greek word that he uses, kratzein, to cry out. It's the same word that's used of Christ on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the image that Paul is putting forward here is not of a a self-contented Son of God that sees itself as having made it. It's a lot more like the picture of of a little girl that falls off her bike and scrapes up her knee and gets all bloodied up and cries out, Daddy, help me. There's total assurance there. And the Spirit gives that total assurance. That child knows that Daddy will do everything to help her, but there's nothing at all of self-confidence in that cry. It's a needy confidence, a dependent kind of confidence. In some circles, even some reformed circles, there can be this such an emphasis on, on assurance that people think that only truly spiritual people are the people that never struggle, that, that never doubt, that never cry out, and, and never feel like they need God's help. But exactly the opposite is in fact the case. Those who are of the Spirit are those whom the, the Spirit gives the assurance to cry out, Daddy, help me. So the Holy Spirit assures us that we are God's children in such a way that we cry out to Him. Fourth, the Holy Spirit gives us patience and hope in suffering. And you can see that's, that's what Paul was already getting back to, getting at way back in, in chapter 5. He says we glory in our tribulations. And now he comes back to this again in, in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Why? For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Go a few verses down. And he says... Um, not only that, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves. Where does that, that patience and that hope in that tribulation come from? It comes from the Spirit. The reality is the world around us, as we also saw this morning, is not the way it was created to be. And that's Paul's point here. It's profoundly ruined by sin. Even though Christ is gathering his church, he's building his kingdom, he's moving the gospel forward, still death and suffering is the reality that every generation must face. And with that death, there is so much affliction and so much sadness. And especially, that's the case for Christians. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we of all men are most to be pitied. It's easy to lose perspective when you live in that kind of world. But it's the Holy Spirit who keeps us, uh, who helps us keep our perspective. This world, Paul says, all the pain, all the affliction, all the suffering, those are pangs of childbirth. Something much greater is going to come out of that. Our work, 
our suffering, our toil, the love and compassion we dish out day after day as Christians, the tears we shed for one another, the work we put in to to bring others to the knowledge of Christ, that is not work that's done in vain, even though it feels often in vain. In in northern Iraq, where... where, uh, some of the, the most ancient Christian communities have, have lived ever since uh, shortly after the time of Christ. Many of them in the past uh, decades have been ministering to their Muslim neighbors, helping them whenever they were in need, sometimes bringing their children into their home. Oftentimes they were more affluent than their, their Muslim neighbors and, and doing whatever they could to follow the command of Christ and minister to these Muslims around them. And then when, when ISIS came in and swept into those neighborhoods, many of those Christians have testified that one of the hardest things to see was some of those own neighbors, some of the own children that they had brought into their homes came and tore the crosses off of their churches and burned their churches down. And it, it felt to them like so many years of showing kindness and compassion all came to nothing. Well, the Holy Spirit helps us keep perspective in this broken world. Our work and our efforts are not in vain. Our fight against our own sin, too, is not in vain, though it often feels like it is. This world is in the pangs of childbirth. Something much greater is going to come out of this. There is a day that's coming when our bodies are going to be renewed, when sin will be finished forever, and when the children of God are going to be revealed and glorified. And that confidence, that perspective that Paul is presenting, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life. So the Holy Spirit helps us, uh, gives us hope and perspective in the midst of tribulation and suffering. The Holy Spirit helps us not to not just flee from suffering, but to hold on to our assurance that He will redeem us and make something out of all these sufferings. As Paul says, who hopes for what he already sees? But we hope for what we do not see. With perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Fifth and finally, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. You see that in verse 26. He says, Likewise, the Holy Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Paul specifically mentions prayer here, but he doesn't only mean the times when we fold our hands and, and close our eyes. But he's referring to that that constant prayer that's always on the heart of a Christian who who hope and pray even as they work and in all that they do. So so the, the suffering and the discouragement that we experience in this life, it really can be so overwhelming that sometimes we don't even have the words left to pray. And sometimes it seems to us that our faith itself has finally been broken. It's finally been it's finally disappeared under all of the the affliction. That's the weakness that Paul is referring to. We don't always have the answers. But the Spirit gives us that strength that we find in ourselves to hold on to Christ even when we can't explain why we're still holding 
on. The Spirit helps us to do so nevertheless, to hold on confidently to the belief that somehow, though it doesn't seem possible, God is going to work this affliction for good, even though I can't imagine how he will do so. That confidence is not the kind of thing that comes from the flesh. That's the work of the Spirit. And so then verses 31 through 39, which are very familiar verses, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who shall be against us? Those are the words that Christians speak in the face of even the worst adversities, even when we don't have the strength to actually utter those words anymore. The Spirit in us defies all of the reasons we might have for despairing and giving up. The Spirit is the one who says, hey, if God is for me, who can possibly still be against me? And then, and then true to form, the Spirit does, you see this in Paul, he does what he always does, redirects us back to Christ. He who did not spare his own son, you see the Spirit doing this in Paul, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us, how will he not freely give us all things? It always comes back to Christ. That's what the Spirit does. Again, you see it in verse 34. Who's the one who condemns? Christ is the one who died, who indeed was even raised and sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? That's the language of the Spirit. So let's go back then to our first question. Is this a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, here's how you can answer that question by asking these questions. Is this a church where Christ is treasured, where his work on the cross is valued above everything else, where we not only believe the facts about what Christ did, but also rejoice because we know that Christ did these things for us. That's the first thing. Second, are, these, are the deeds of the flesh being put to death in the midst of this church? Or do people in this church still live fleshly, worldly lives? Third, do the members of this church cry out to their father as a child cries to her father, knowing that he hears us, but never content in ourselves? Fourth, do the members of this church persevere in affliction and suffering? Do they hope patiently in God? Do they work steadfastly in pain and affliction? Fifth, and along the same lines, is this a church where our faith runs even deeper than our words and persists even when our words fail us and difficulties seem to overwhelm us? Is this a church where in the face of even the worst odds, we're still able to say, yeah, but we have Christ And that is enough, and that shows that we have all that we need. That is a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so then, my prayer for you, my prayer for my own church too, is that the Holy Spirit would make Christ even more precious to us, enable us to fight against sin even more fervently, and that our sense of childlike trust and dependence in the Father would be even more urgent and even more humble, our hope even more steadfast, and our faith even deeper than our words. 
Amen.